I am not Alex Garcia, as you can see, and we certainly will miss our pastor this morning. When he called me Wednesday, I told him that I would be happy, we I looked, and we would be in town to fill in. But uh, what um, I didn't uh, uh, realize is that he would really be that sick. I was hoping he'd get better. I've certainly enjoyed his series on John. I want to tell you, I've preached John, heard John taught by, I think, some of the greatest Bible teachers of, I have to say, the last century now. That's a little hard, but anyway. <laughs> but I remember S. Lewis Johnson teaching John. And I want to tell you, we have been blessed with our pastor. He is doing a marvelous job on that. It is our blessing to be with you, and it's so nice to see so many of my family members here, and we see other friends that are uh, very close to us, and we appreciate, I appreciate the support, uh, Steve and Margaret, and all that are here. I told Mark when I got up here, it's, we're back together again. We served God together at Northwest Bible in Dallas, and that was many mango seasons ago. I use that because I'm a Floridian, but anyway, that was a long time ago, but it was a great time, and Mark has been a faithful servant, and we're very thankful for him. I want to pray for Alex and for Stephanie and for their daughters for just a moment before we start. Our Father, it is a great blessing to be here with our family, this church family that has accepted us and made, them, made us part of them. Lord, we thank you for our pastor and for his wife and for his two daughters that are walking with you, are loving you and following you. We ask that you would heal him, but also keep them, heal them and bring them back to health. And this, the very late afternoon of Western civilization, we need all those who walk in the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully and in purity on deck to serve him. And so we ask for them. I thank you again for this congregation, and I ask your blessing on them in the weeks to come. Guide us now as we look into your word and to probably the heart of the apostles, not only ministry, but his very being as a new man in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And this morning as we begin, we are going to be dealing with 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as we read, and you might turn to it. I wanted to thank First, as we get into God's Word, for this little piece that comes to us each week, Prayer Walk. It's been a wonderful help to us. It has helped us know this congregation, and it has helped us become and feel a part of it. We do pray for those that are mentioned here. I've always been impressed that you have missionaries that have our name, and we certainly remember Jim and Phyllis Meyer, because that's our name. Jim and Phyllis. But they're in a much difficult, more difficult situation than we are. The Ukraine and all that's going on around it is kind of what is happening in the world today. And so pray for them diligently. We also like to pray for those who have great needs and are 
suffering and have had medical problems and other kinds of difficulties. But this brings us to a question. When you look at a sheet like this, listing people who walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, who know him personally, have been faithful, there is always the question, why? Why does God allow his sons and daughters who are faithfully following him to find themselves, as it were, battered, harassed, and hurt through all kinds of situations and happenings? Why does he allow it to happen? And what is his purpose in it? As you know, this is one of the things those who do not follow the Lord Jesus Christ and are enemies of God use to say Christianity really is not all it's made up to be. But Paul deals with this problem. He deals with it in what I think is my life verse, our passage, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. To give you a little background on that, Paul is writing probably the third letter to Corinth at this point. He wrote this around A.D. 56. He had been at Corinth, he had left Corinth, he had gone back. We won't go through all of the ins and outs of going to Corinth, but they knew him well. And they also knew what he had suffered at Corinth and what he was also dealing with. In fact, he mentions many of those things in the first three chapters. How he was beside himself when he looked for one of his uh, associates and he wasn't there. How he had faced great wanderings and anxieties. And they knew of other things. He had already done most of his great ministry in Ephesus. He was there almost three years. But while there, as he wrote, he was in the arena fighting wild beasts. We do not really know what that meant. It may have meant literal, but we do not think there was that kind of arena at Ephesus. So we suspect it meant he was dealing with those who were the enemy of Christ in that the capital city of Proconsula Asia. But at any rate, they knew in Corinth that Paul had, and those who walked with him, his friends, had suffered greatly. And so, when he writes them, he is writing them to help deal with something that was on the table in Corinth. And that was the question of Paul's suffering. Why had Paul suffered so? Those who were his enemy had already worked their way into the situation we won't go into their background except to say they were Hellenistic Judaizers. That's the worst of two worlds. They were people who denied the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and, and really in doing that denied God the Father. And yet they claimed to know God personally and that they had it all together. And because of that, they were criticizing Paul. In fact, it was kind of a syllogism that they had put out to the people of Corinth and beyond anybody else who would listen. You remember, a syllogism has two prefaces and then one conclusion. The first precept or prefaces is that they said those who faithfully follow and serve God will not suffer. 
they will be taken care of at all times. All will be good for them. The second one was if somebody claims to be a follower of Christ or God and as claims to be in God's good favor but is suffering, then he is showing that he is not. That he is not God's servant and he is not really knowing anything about the true God. The conclusion was Paul is suffering. Therefore, Paul could not be a servant of God. He could not be a, a, an apostle as he claimed to be because suffering canceled out that possibility. In this passage, Paul answers that question. He really does it beginning in verse 7, but he prefaces it with other things that would help us know what is the mark of somebody who truly preaches the word of God. We start off in verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in the craftiness or adulterating the word of God, literally not using it to play tricks or deluding it to fit in but by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God and that was a huge confession and a huge acclamation by Paul that he was God's faithful servant the first thing he tells him is if you really want to test a servant look at their conduct if their conduct matches their communication then they are a person of God and Paul said we have done that and we are people who do it because we know we have received the mercy of God and that mercy is what we are showing to you now we know that Christ's death has brought us many wonderful things but there is one crucial coin on one side we have the grace of God the grace of God means that God through Christ when we trust him and what he offers to us is his his favor that is not merited by us his his favor is to us even though we do not deserve it we get it because Christ died for us secondly God has shown us mercy mercy is God does not as it were judge us rather he takes pity on us he does not judge us for our sins but he takes us and loves us because his son took care of that and died for our sins. Paul picks up in this passage the mercy side. We have received mercy and we have been telling people. And what he says next is we will not stop doing it. We won't lose heart. We're not going to give up. Now that is a huge issue today. We are seeing a lot of churches and a lot of people who are beginning to back off saying, well, we really don't have to be as strong on this about Christ being the only way as we once did. But that is not what Paul says. He says in this, we want to keep ourselves going and not lose our heart, but continue to go on. But with it, we must, with our, as it were, presentation of the gospel, we must have a purity in our living. In verse 2 he says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in the craftiness, really trickery, or as it were, diluting the word of God. 
but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I love that passage because what it talks about is that Paul preached the gospel as it is. And one of the things we love about being in this church is you do too. We want to be where the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the heart of that word, is what we teach, preach, and constantly offer to others. But we also are to live it. But he says that is what we are commending. And we are commending it as a manifestation of truth by the way we live. And by our living and our message, we commend ourselves, he says, to every man's conscience. And the word man in, in this passage, anthropos, it really covers women. The Greeks did that. He's not trying to be a, a chauvinist. He's just saying all humanity who hear us and have cognition, they are moved by this. But this is something that is huge. He says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. When Paul preached, and those who were with him preached, and when he witnessed, and those who were with him witnessed, and when you witness in Christ, walking with the Lord by his Spirit in purity, you are doing it to other people. That is what you're doing. You're offering it to those who are in front of you, are hearing you, and that you're in contact with. And yet, there is someone else involved in this. He is the one that we are doing all of this before. In other words, when we share the Lord Jesus Christ, when we teach his word, we do it in the very presence, and that is literally what this says, of God, in the sight of God, literally in the presence of God. Uh, my son Keith is with us this morning, and we have together recently been studying a lot about the Puritans. He's <coughs> sent me some books that touch on this and go back to that. And the Puritans had one saying. These are the people, John Winthrop and those, who walked with Christ and really founded Christianity in this country. They said, we live our life before an audience of one. And that's true of every one of us. Everything we do is in the presence of God, whether we know it or not. But Paul knew it, and when we present Christ, we know it. We are doing it in the presence of God to others. And you know the amazing thing is, they also know it. We know that's true because Paul was the one who so evidently experienced it in the time of the early church. You remember Paul was sending Christians to their death and to prison. He was the leading hitman for the Pharisees. He went out to other cities, finally to Damascus, where he found out he was after the wrong person, and he faced God, a wrong people. But Paul, remember, is mentioned before that. In the book of Acts, we have the account of a very godly young deacon. His name was Stephanus, Stephen. And Stephen was a young man who had followed God faithfully. He was a deacon who really did the work of the gospel. And he's called up, you'll remember, finally before the council, the Sanhedrin, the 70. 
and the ten chief priests were there and the high priest was there and they were going to deal with him because he was having such a great impact. I, I do want to say one thing about this. We are seeing God raise up Stevens in our younger generation and that is very exciting. Uh, my son and his wife are part of a church in uh, Corpus Christi that the average age is 25, I would say. I go there and I really feel old. And, you know, there I am. But these young men and women, they are taking the gospel wherever they go. And we're seeing that not only there, we're seeing it in California. We're seeing it even in the Northeast. Well, this was true with Stephen. He was one of the young powers. And before the council, he, remember, goes through the whole history of the Old Testament. He takes them through it beautifully, wonderfully, and he ends up with Christ. When he does that and begins to bring Christ in as the only way to salvation, remember they blew up. These men who were hearing him knew he was in the presence of God. And the conviction on them was such that they rejected that God, the true God, and they turned on him and they dragged him out to be stoned. And at St. Stephen's Gate in Jerusalem, and I think that is the right place if you've been there, this young man was stoned to death. But before he died, remember, he said, I, he saw Jesus standing up. Jesus had gotten off his throne and was waiting for Stephen. And he went to sleep. But what you have to remember is there was a young man there watching also, who was very much on the other side. His name was Saul of Tarsus. Brilliant. Uh, beyond imagination. I spent my life studying Greek, uh, the biblical side of the Greek culture, but also Greek culture and the writings. And you read Paul's works, and all of a sudden, who is Saul of Tarsus, became Paul. He will quote some minor Greek philosopher and you have to know what you're doing to do that well there he was he was there watching Stephen stone to death and it says he held the coats of those who were throwing the stones but at that point Saul realized something this young man had been saying what he was saying presenting the God of Israel who he said was Jesus Christ to that group and he was doing it Paul sensed in the presence of God and that is why he never got over that and when finally Christ appeared to him he was ready and that is why Christ said Paul you can't kick against the ox goad the sticking in your life because you know it's true and that is what Paul says we do it in the image of God or we do it in the presence of God, and doing it in the presence of God, they realize God is there. But if that is true, the question comes, well, if that's true, then why do people reject him? If they know it's really God, why do they reject him? Uh, we run into people sometimes who say that, you know, if people really saw true miracles, if we could really do some great miracles, you know, really neat stuff. Now, it does affect some people. But I want to tell you, there are those that aren't affected. They have already made up their mind. If you read the Revelation, you'll find that there's a point at which 
the people are blaspheming God in chapter 16. And they're shaking their fist at God. You know what they've seen? They've seen an angel come through heaven preaching the gospel. That's, that's a fair sign, you know. Secondly, seen the miraculous rising up of two men in the temple area. Two were, who were killed and three days later they get up and, and go to heaven. And that, that's pretty strong too. And yet, here they are. They know God is there, but they're saying, we're not putting up with you. That is because, even though you may see a miracle, you must decide to trust in the one who has caused it. And that is what Paul is talking about. And he says, sometimes people don't. And that answers the question, is Paul's message and everything that supported it is so strong? Why do people not all turn? He begins to answer that in verse 3. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world, literally the God of this age, the same one, the one our Lord Jesus calls the God of this world in the upper room discourse, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your slaves, our bondservants, for Christ said. For God who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us why some don't trust. They don't trust, as we find in verse 4, because... The God of this world has blinded them. Now, when you read that standing by itself, you might think that, well, there comes a time and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, Satan or one of his demons appears and blinds a person. And they really didn't have a chance. That's not what's going on. Read it carefully. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They are already unbelieving. This is a description of the people that Satan can blind. They have made a decision not to believe. Now before I go on with this, I want to say that you want to be very careful not to say, well, I know people like this and I'm not going to say any more to them because they're already blind. We do not know. But God does. And what we see is they, they are already unbelieving. See, every person, I believe, has a chance to put their faith in Christ. He gives them that chance and they are either going to at some point say yes or no. As Ray Stedman used to say, some will get very close but they will be stillborn. Well, there are people that are that way. When Phyllis Ann and I were in Connecticut many years ago before we had Keith or Mark or sons, and I was in the military up there serving in a Nike unit. I had a section chief whose name was Blackstock. And Blackstock was an interesting guy. He'd see me after I released the troops down in the launching area of our, our site up on a mountain. We were protecting all of you, by the way, with our Nike missiles. Uh, he would see me in my office having my devotions. The day started about 5, so I did it in the evening. One day he walked in and he said, uh, Lieutenant, tell me, what are you reading? And I said, Sergeant, I'm reading the Bible. He said, well, tell me about it. And so I began to tell him about Christ. 
Phyllis got involved in this, who has really the gift of evangelism. She's a getter. She goes after him. <laughs> and uh, she begins to... We, we started meeting periodically with Blackstock together. Not to damage the lines of uh, military protocol or anything, but it was good. And we would talk to him about Christ, and at times the sweat would just pour off of him. And we weren't hammering him. We were just presenting the gospel. But one day we got with Blackstock and... I said, hey, would you like to, we got some time later today, would you like to get to He says, no. He says, I don't need to hear that anymore. And he walked away. Now, I do not know if he had at that point made his decision not to believe. It looked like it. And if I find myself in heaven and all of a sudden a guy runs up to me and squeezes, throws his arms around me and says, I'm Blackstock, I'll say, well, yeah, we missed that one, didn't we? But there are those that make that decision. And when they do, God allows the God of this world to take them all the way. He throws a veil, literally, and that is what the word that is, is used here means, a veil over their face. Their veil to those who... And by the way, the last thing in this is a characteristic participle at the end of verse 3. Those who are perishing, that is those whose lives are characterized as now perishing and will be perishing forever. You see, just like eternal life is going to get better and better and more glorious than we can possibly imagine, we cannot begin to, as Paul says in another place, to understand the beauty and greatness of heaven. And we'll never get over it, and the next day is going to be better than this one. That is also true true of those who go into eternal damnation and are not with God and separated they will be as it were perishing forever and because they have been blinded the God of this world has blinded them so that they might not see the light you see the first thing we see is the light of the gospel that's why you and I telling people about Christ is so important when you do as we'll see the light shines on them it shines through you to him them But it is the light of God shining through your word that is according to the truth. And when that happens, they have the opportunity to trust in Christ. Paul knew what that was about. For he says, well, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves, your bondservants for Christ's sake. I think his point in five is when people reject our message, they aren't rejecting us. They're rejecting Jesus. That's important to realize because we can get very discouraged. I didn't do very well. And I want to tell you, God has used some really unusual people to bring people to Christ. It is always an amazing thing. Pastoring in New York for a number of years, right down in midtown Manhattan, on the West, we, we, uh, we really enjoyed West 57th Street where we lived, pastoring a church there. We had some very interesting people. Now, They come here and they look at us and they say, you're very interesting people. But we had taxi, had one taxi driver, I'll never forget him. He drove me crazy. He was always asking me if he'd preach. We had a staff of of 12 or 14 pastors and he he always, I had to tell him, no, you can't preach, but you can teach and you can share the gospel, we'll give a place. He was terrific at it. Now, you know, he wouldn't have touched me a bit, but boy, there were people, this taxi driver knew how to tell them about Jesus and it worked. And God used it. 
And when he did, it was not that they were trusting the taxi driver, they were trusting the Christ that he worshipped. And that's true of you. Every one of us has been uniquely designed to have an impact in people's lives that God will place us. God, nothing is by accident. We won't go on in that, but that is a huge issue. And when they either accept Christ or deny or don't accept him, know that they're not accepting you or denying you. It is all about Jesus. Paul knew about this because in verse 6 he says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul had had that experience. Remember, you find him on the road to Damascus and what happens to him there in the book of Acts. A light shines and he's blinded for days. That light had shone on him. But once he trusted that light not only shone on him, that light came to live him because that light is Jesus Christ. One thing we know from the scripture is that we probably will never see God the Father. We'll see his glory, we'll see his throne, but it's so glorious we just will not see him. But John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, I was not here when uh, Alex preached that. He probably mentioned this. It says that Jesus Christ has exegeted the Father for us. That is, he has explained the Father to us. When you see him, as he would later tell Thomas, those who have seen me have seen the Father. That's how we see Christ. And that is what was going on here. And the light shone on Paul, and finally he trusted and the light that shone on him was in him, and that light was Jesus Christ. Because he had seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. And now others, when they saw Paul, would see that same light shining through him. You see, when we come and present Christ, it's not just that we are giving them a clever argument. That's not really it. We are presenting them with that message that God the Holy Spirit says, I will empower in them and in you. I'll break through their darkness. Then they have a decision to make. Trust me or not. That is, trust Christ or not. And so Paul had experienced that. And he had Christ in him, as he says in Colossians chapter 1, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Isn't that amazing? We're sitting here and Christ is in you. The next thing Paul does, however, is finally come to the question of why does he suffer even though he is faithfully serving Jesus Christ? And that comes to verses 7 through 11. And we will look at them. Actually, we will just go through probably verse 10. But we have this treasure, he says, in earthen vessels... Uh, the term earthen vessels is a, an interesting term in the Greek language. It, it literally is the word astrakhanos suksion. It means earthly pots. It means this. And this. And this. Now these are a little before the New Testament period. These are some out of my collection. I... I, my avocation has kind of been archaeology and every time we go to Israel and we've been going for 50 years and we'll go again this next fall and, we, and I'll want to buy something and Phyllis will look at me and say 
She won't say anything, but the look says, do you really need another one? And I'll say, oh, yes, I've got to have that one. But I will go to Badun's shop, and Badun's father actually dug with the Nelson Glick and Garstang at Jericho. And uh, so his, he, he is not only an antiquity dealer, he's been a friend for 50 years, he is also an archaeologist. And from him I've gotten these. These are the kind of pots, they haven't changed a lot. These are older than New the, the New Testament time, the time of Christ and the time of Paul, the first century of uh, A.D., uh, these actually go back, all three of these go back to what we call late bronze. And that is the time of Joshua and then Judges. That is, these are about 14, about 3,400 years old. You're welcome to come up and look at them later, but please don't handle them. They, if you were 3,400 years ago, you wouldn't want anybody handling you either. But this was the common ware. When God set his table as it were, before the world with his vessels, he did not use fine china. He used clay pots. Well, this, you are, well, I, I like, there used to be a store, Toys R Us. When I read this passage, I think of it as pots R Us. None of us are fine china. Now, some of us look better than the other, and as we get older, we know that they, you look less and less like a nicely decorated pot. But we are all God's clay pots. And there is a reason for that, and that is what Paul is going to talk about. He's going to talk about why we suffer, why we have these things slam into our life that we don't understand, that we don't like. And he begins by saying, well, we have this treasure in one of these, one of these earthen vessels. God does not put it in a Brinks, say, our car, armored car, or in a Chase Manhattan bank safe. He puts it in you because it is not an it, it is a him. It is a person. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That is, every passage has a big idea. The main thing, that's it. You got right there in seven. That God has put his treasure in us who are his clay pots. Pots are us. So that the people may see that the power that we have and the light that is in us is not us and not ours. It is him. And that's what he goes on to talk about. And he's going to talk about what happens to pots. We are, he says, and there are going to be four blows, as it were, or four hits that we take as, these are categories, you, can, you have to decide what, where they fit, but we've all gone through them. He says, we are afflicted in every way, number one, and, but we're not crushed. To be afflicted is to be in a narrow place, to suddenly be in a dead end, dead end as it were. We come to a dead end street in our life. We don't know which way to go. We have no idea what to do. Should I leave this job or stay with it? Should I stay here in Fredericksburg or should I, I take this offer and go somewhere else? I like Fredericksburg and I like Fredericksburg Bible Church, but, but what should I do? Or should I put my kids in private school or still let them try to slug it out in public school? Or all of these things. And you know, we're so thankful now as parents that our kids are grown and they're really following the Lord. But I look at every parent and say, Boy, you have things to deal with we never thought about. 
And that is what these are about. These are the afflictions, the everyday problems that you face. And they hit you and you say, wow, God, by the way, has chosen to let Phyllis Ann and I feel with you in certain things. We don't, our children are walking with the Lord and we're very thankful for that. But we've had other everyday problems we've really been puzzled about. We love to fish. And we have a boat that we've kept for almost 30 years now one kind or another down at South Padre and we go I grew up fishing I grew up in South Florida I grew up fishing the tree- Keys so we love it so we're down there last year with our boat and we have a fairly new outboard on it the go Yamaha and we're, we're there and we're sitting in a light and the trailer's behind us Phyllis is driving and we're going to go launch a boat it's 9 in the morning on a Tuesday morning and all of a sudden wham we look behind us and a city bus has hit our boat. Now that it doesn't happen, you know, boats get hit with a lot of things, but by buses, not usually. <laughs> and so we have spent the whole year trying to take care of the, the bus. Well, some of the councilmen we've gotten to know down there, and they went to bat for us, and thank God for them. And we got the insurance that the city had, and they paid up. Well, now they can't find parts. Have you, have you tried to get a part for anything recently? And this Yamaha, they'd been waiting, and they said, well, we were going to go next month, but our motor doesn't have the parts. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. And you go, Lord, why me? He says, that's so you'll have a crack in your pot. So people can see you frustrated, and shining through you will be the light of my son and the power of my son, and they'll know it's him and not you. And if you know me, you can be sure it's not me. I'm the most impatient person you've ever seen. Anyway, ask Phyllis Ann. So that is the first one. The second one, he says, we are perplexed but not despairing. Now, the, uh, the, uh, the perplex is uh, that you, you have a decision you have to make and you don't know what to do. You have no idea what to do. The other one just can crush you and destroy you. And he says, God won't let that. He, he, and we'll talk about that. His power in us pushes back so that we go on with peace and joy. The, the next one, though, the one that, is, that we have the surpassing, the uh, perplexity is, I, I really don't know what to do with this thing. I don't know how to handle this at work or at home or dealing with my kids or whatever. I don't know. And God doesn't write you a letter. But what he does promise, he says that, that you will not despair because I will take you step by step along the way. But it's another crack in our pot. Persecuted is nine, and that's one we have not had a lot of in this country. But I think it's coming. We have friends who minister in Canada. It's already there. And we have spent a great deal of time in the Middle East through the years. And my son back there has been in some other countries in the Middle East. And he has seen firsthand what Christians go through there being persecuted. For us, it may be a cold shoulder by a company we're with that wants us to really, you know, get our act together. Or like the stewardess with Southwestern Airline who happened to give some of her testimony on the airplane and they fired her. Uh, she got a great settlement out of that, but that's the kind of persecution that comes. 
And God says that sometimes we're going to feel alone, persecuted, but he says, you will not be left alone. That's the third one. Our Lord promises us after the Great Commission, I will never leave you or forsake you. We need to know that because we are in a time as Western civilization's sunset is upon us that we're going to have that kind of thing happen. But Paul says, don't let it bother you. It's just another hit on the pot, another crack. And finally he says that we're struck down but not destroyed. That's the anvil that comes through the roof of your life. It can be medical, it can be physical, it can be a job, it can be your future, it can be a relationship that breaks up, whatever. We had lunch this past week with a close friend who is a pub- publishes, he has a publishing house and a printing house, and one of his uh, daughters is married to a very sharp young man, and her father has gone through a really neat Christian family, and he is just retired. And having just retired, he was all excited about this, and he, he went to the doctor to get a checkup. And the doctor said, you're getting a checkup, but I'm checking you into the hospital. You're in serious trouble. That's what that is, that anvil coming through the roof. Some people say you describe this as being knocked down, but not, doc- not docked out. We are not destroyed. God lifts us up. When I read this passage, it always brings me back to a young man that is now here in Texas again. As I said, we were in Dallas for 12 years. Before that, four years at seminary and then 12 years pastoring in Dallas. And we had a very large singles ministry. It was huge. You know, 1,500 singles every Sunday night in that. And we had three or four pastors full-time that worked with that. We had a guy, we had a lot of seminary students. And one of these seminary students uh, kept coming, and finally one day he came up and shook hands with me after me. He was a young man that you could tell had gone through great physical problems. He had a difficult time speaking. He, he had a difficult time walking. And you could tell that he had had some, some injuries or diseases. He had a great mind, and he graduated with, from seminary with a straight A's. He has a doctorate now. But he just, it was hard for him to talk. And to do. But he said, I want to have a ministry in the singles ministry. Well, you know, singles ministry, they want people who look good, smell good, drive big cars or fast cars. You know, they're, they're the end of everything. And I said, well, you know, and I didn't want to tell this guy. I didn't know him very well. His name's Alan Brown. I've told Alan this story so I can tell you. So I got Steve Johnson in, who was head of all of our singles ministry. And I said, Steve, give Alan a chance. He, he probably won't do very well, but he, he's, he's a dear guy. And he's, he's second year into seminary, and, and we want to give him a chance. And he said, okay. A year later... There was a list, a waiting list, of young Dallas singles who were the with it people trying to get into Alan Brown's 
Bible study group on Sunday night. You know why? He was a clay pot that had been cracked. But through those cracks came the light of Christ and the power of Christ like I have never seen. And he's continued that. He's not very far from you right now. He's down on the coast, down on the coast, of, and he's or down on the border of Mexico, actually, in McAllen, and he's teaching in a Bible school down there. God's cracked his pot again. We just got from Alan his prayer letter, and he's come down with cancer. He said, pray for me. His wife is named Phyllis, and so we... We are praying for him. But then I read the rest of the letter. He said, I don't know where this has come out. He says, but really what I want you to pray for is I'm teaching this class and this class this fall. Pray that God really uses us. See, the cracks aren't going to stop him. Christ is going to shine through him. I don't know what you're facing today, but let it not stop you. Let those cracks be where Christ shines through you. You see what he does because he's in us first. He keeps us from being crushed. His power supports us. Secondly, he shines not only in us, but then he shines through us. And people see in you through that what they cannot see any other way. I was, let me see how much time we've got here. Calvary, they had a big clock in the back because we were on television, so we had to, you know, (laughs) television people would be up. This is in New York City when I was pastoring there. But we're going to talk about this anyway. The, um, the, the, The thing that happens to us is one that really, when we understand it, motivates us. A number of years ago, before the Iron Curtain fell and it's been very real this week because Gorbachev died at 91. I was over, I was pastoring in Dallas. I was over seas for a Christian group, Bud Hankston and his married men, behind the Iron Curtain. He said, we want you to come and teach pastors in Romania. I knew a little bit about Romania. I knew they spoke Italian, sort of, and I sort of worked with that, but... The, the other side of it is uh, I, I knew that it was a lot worse than Russia. And he said, well, you'll be fine. We'll take care of you. It'll all be, you know, underground and all that. So with intrepidation, this crackpot got on a plane, flew to Stern, Germany, met my contact, met with all of the guys who were going in, some of whom never came out again, and went the next day, flew into Bucharest, the capital of Romania. Ceausescu was the dictator at that point. I'll never forget going through customs. You know, I go through by myself. My, my guy that I came with, he's out there waiting for me, and I'm, this guy's looking at me. He says, why are you in Bucharest? I said, well, you know, I wanted to see it. It's a place, Transylvania, and, you know, all of those things, and Dracula, and I just wanted to see it's supposed to be a beautiful country. It was snowing like crazy. He looked out at the snow. He said, you're kidding, of course. But he couldn't find anything, so I went. Well, that turned out to be two weeks, actually almost three, in a communist country. If you think communism is fun, you can try it. 
But three weeks I was there and I was teaching in both Lagos, which is up near their university, and, and then in Bucharest itself. And the group of Bucharest were about 20 pastors. Strangely enough, they let churches go on, but they beat up on them as often as they could. They'd take the pastors, put them in jail. I was meeting one time with a small group of pastors up at Lagos. The guy, one of the guys comes in, he's got his leg broken, his arm broken, his shoulder broken. That's what they'd done to him. So they were suffering a lot. But I was meeting the main group. I met with about 20 pastors. We slip in. It's all underground. You went very carefully. We're down in the basement of this area, this house that they, they were using to hide from the police. And I'm teaching them the scripture. And I chose to choose for that week, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through chapter 6. And we got to this section. And I was speaking through a translator. And I came to that and I said, we got through this section of the four hits on our crack, on our pot to crack us. And I said, we are all crackpots for Christ. The translator looked at me. You crack the pots for Christ? He had no idea what it meant. And he cracked the pots. He said, don't tell me. He said, tell me again. And I said, I tried to explain it to him. Of the 20 guys sitting always on the left, 10 on one side, 10 on the far left, was this big raw bone pastor right outside the city who pastored a church. He, I said, you know, this guy's not the brightest light there, but he's a lot brighter than I realized. He's listening to this. And finally, he comes out and stands. And he's listening to me talking to this translator. And all of a sudden, he got it. He looked at me and he said, Crack the pots for Christ. Crack the pots for Christ. He told those other 19 pastors. You know what they did? First, they started crying. Then they got up and they marched around the room, saying in Romanian, We are cracked the pots for Christ. That's what it takes. We finally come to the end of this and we know that we are all caring about in our body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Christ may be manifested in our body. We are dying to ourselves and living to God. As you may know, this passion has a background. I agree with those who hold that Paul, as he wrote this, was thinking of a great Old Testament account. One found in the book of Judges, chapter 7. And that's the story of Gideon. Now, if anybody was an unlikely general to lead in a victory, it was Gideon. First time we see him in chapter 6, he's down in a wine vat, hiding from the enemy who were basically the uh, Amalekites and the... uh, he's down there just uh, scared to death and God appears to him. Now, when God appeared to him, he told him that he wanted him to be the deliverer of Israel. And so he uh, um, is down there and he thinks, well, how is that going to happen? The long story short, he finally, God gets his attention and he brings everybody together. And he calls them together, and they're going to, as it were, go to war. 
And what he's going to do, he's going to go, go to war against the Midianites and the Amalekites. They're invading his country. And God says, I want you to be my general. And he has real, real mixed feelings about this. But so he, he, he calls out an army. And he gathers his army. And he has 32,000 men in that part of Judah. This is during the days of the Judges. And he, boy, he's excited. He says, well, I can, I can at least try this. But when he gets ready to go, God says to Gideon, the people are too many. I imagine Gideon thought, what do you mean too many? There are 135,000 Midianites over here. And you, you, my 32,000 is too many. Too many. And he said, let anybody who's fearful and frightened go home. Well, 22,000 of them decided they were fearful and frightened, and they went home. Next, he says, well, we'll, we'll go with what we got, Lord. We, you know, we got 10,000 left. God says, it's still too many. You see, this is important because God works with remnants who will trust him to do amazing things. So he has them come together again and they go to the water and everybody who is lifting water in his hand and looking around for the enemy says send them out but those that are out on hands and knees drinking trusting God not looking at anything you keep them he wound up with 300 now you remember what happened to the 300 Gideon goes finally and surrounds the camp of the Midianites and the Amalekites in three groups. He has 300, they have 135,000. But God said, here's what you do. You tell them to take a picture. Now, there are many shapes. And you tell them to put a torch in it and take a trumpet with them. And when I give the signal, you give the signal to them. And they are to blow the trumpets. They are to light the torches and they're to smash the pictures and the light will shine and you know that's what happened they got there they did that and when they did that God put the camp of the Amalekites and the Midianites in disarray they turned on one another with swords because the light of God shone through the broken pictures and the trumpet of God said he's here and Gideon won a battle that was unparalleled in Scripture. I want to say to you this morning, we could go on with this, but I know you've got to go home sometime. I want to say to you, Christ Jesus has blown his trumpet. And we're his crackpots. And what we are to do now to let his light and power shine through us as he takes on the enemy that opposes. Let's do that in the name of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have taken small groups and done great things. We thank you for Paul giving us the picture of what he is, a crackpot for Christ, and that is what we are. But you will throw... You will bring your power to bear through us and you will cause your light to shine from us, from the cracks, through the cracks, if we follow you. And that's what we ask. Lord, let this church be a light. Let us be a congregation of crackpots who love you and let your, 
You are shining your light through us and your power is rolling out to see a city, a state, and a nation turn back to you. Lord, if there's any here that have not trusted in your Son, that like those who have heard the gospel but they have not really believed, let them believe before they become permanently unbelievers and Satan blinds their mind. We ask they would put their faith in Jesus Christ and simply trust in him as the one who died for their sins, according to the scripture. Let them say this day, Lord Jesus, I trust in you. Thank you for coming to live in me and giving me life eternal. We ask this, Father, in his name. Amen.